0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor and host of Babbage. This week, an online quantum computer is being made available for the public to play with. And for the first time, a robot has successfully performed an operation on a pig. Here is the lead author of that study, Surgeon Peter Kim. If you
2: happen to need a surgery, or if your loved one needs a surgery, wouldn't it be nice to have the best surgeon's skill set available to you anywhere and at any time?
1: Before returning to robot super surgeons, potentially containing the collective knowledge of all doctors, and perhaps their foibles as well, we turn to developments in quantum computing as IBM is letting the public have a fiddle with one of their quantum computers online through their cloud service. With me to discuss this is Tim Cross, our science correspondent, who is working on an article for this week's issue. First, let's take a quick listen to IBM's quantum computer from their lab outside New York. Tim, it sounds like a fridge. It doesn't sound very high tech. What is it?
3: Well, you're right. It is exactly a fridge. What you're hearing is not the chip itself, which is is tiny and electronic and doesn't really make any noise when it's in operation. But you are hearing literally the fridge, this massive uh, cylinder full of liquid helium that chills the whole thing to uh, very close to absolute zero, which is the coldest temperature that it's physically possible to have.
1: Now, I know that Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, knows what quantum computing is. There's a great clip on YouTube of him explaining it to the press corps. However, for the sake of our listeners who may need a refresher, what is quantum computing? Well, essentially, it's a
3: way of using the weirdnesses, the sort of counterintuitive nature of quantum mechanics to solve certain kinds of calculation that any classical computer, no matter how big you built it, could ever possibly hope to do. So it lets you speed up a certain number of, not all, but a certain number of quite important mathematical calculations.
1: And why would you want to do that?
3: Well, some of them are very useful. So the the sort of canonical example that everyone goes to is a quantum computer would be able to crack the cryptographic codes that we use on the internet to keep financial transactions safe and so on in seconds. And these are codes, again, that no classical computer, no matter how big, uh, would ever crack, even if it spent the rest of the lifetime of the universe trying to do it. You can also use them for other things. So some people think they might be useful in uh, machine learning, which is this new kind of AI that's making making waves at the moment. Um, But perhaps the most direct use is you can use them to simulate quantum systems and in plain language that means things like chemistry you could use them to accurately simulate what all the molecules in a given chemical reaction do which again is something that even the fastest modern computer it's just totally intractable they just they just can't do it at all
1: now IBM is taking their quantum computer and connecting it to the internet so anyone can use it presumably for free why are they doing this? All the applications I just described,
3: they may well happen one day. We don't have them yet. So the the quantum computer that IBM has, it's a small uh, research model. It's got five qubits, which are the sort of basic fundamental particles of quantum information. Something that big, you can easily simulate that on a current laptop. So it's not exactly a technological breakthrough. I think what IBM want to do with this, they want to sort of introduce people to quantum computing and to and to get them used to thinking about how it works, because it's a very different model from how sort of standard computing works. So making a working quantum computer is, is technologically really tricky. You have to put them inside these massive helium fridges that chill them almost to absolute zero. You have to do your best to isolate them from almost anything in the outside world. Um, you control them by squirting microwaves into the cavity, and each qubit each responds to a different frequency of, of, of sort of radiation. But what IBM have done is they've built an app that hides all this from the user, and what you get when you log on is something that looks almost exactly like a, a musical stave. So you have five parallel lines, lines one for each qubit in the processor and you have a series of little icons along the bottom each of which represents you know one fundamental quantum operation and it's literally a case of dragging and dropping them onto the lines and when you've got the program you want you push a button the symbols are sent off to IBM it converts them into microwaves does all the magic and the answer comes back so it's very it's very sort of easy to use it abstracts all the technological difficulties away and lets you focus on what exactly you can and can't do with one of these chips.
1: Now I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of researchers around the world who want to get their hands on a quantum computer to actually run their analyses. Do you have any sense of who's going to be the first ones lining up? And what is IBM going to do when the network bandwidth is so congested because everyone wants a piece of it? Well, I'm
3: not sure. I mean, a lot of people who are really into this stuff, the sort of people who professionally research this stuff for a living, they'll have you know, simulated chips that they can, they can use themselves. I think this is aimed more at sort of you know, typical programmers who just want to get an idea of, of how this stuff works. Now, you're right. It might be really popular. And IBM have a system whereby you get effectively a certain number of points, and they, they refresh every day. So you're allowed a certain amount of processing time on the system. And it won't be up all the time. They have to take it down every 12 hours to to do maintenance, essentially. They also let you, if things get really congested, you don't have to run it on the actual chip itself. You can run it on a simulated version of the chip.
1: So IBM is going to learn a lot from the usage of the quantum computer in the field. They'll learn something. I
3: think more the people who log on to this website and have a go will start to get an idea of how to program a quantum computer. I mean, it's very, very different from a standard computer. A standard computer, if you, you know, will give you the same answer every time for each program. A quantum computer gives you a probabilistic answer. So it gives you an answer and there's a a certain probability that it's correct, but to be sure, you'll probably want to run the program a few times. The kind of algorithms that work on a quantum computer, they're... They're very specialized and they have to have sort of certain characteristics. Otherwise, they won't work at all. And, you know, the, there's no substitute really for getting your hands on one of these things and playing around with them. You can read all the theory books you want, but you talk to any computer programmer and they'll say, no, 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 I want to actually try it and see what happens. And that's, I think, what this is for.
1: And do you have any idea of the innovations that may come from this?
3: Well, so this particular processor is, is it's almost a toy, if you like, but it's a step along the path. And IBM, IBM have said they want to make it more capable as the technology advances. In maybe 10, 20 years, when you have systems with hundreds of qubits, you'll be able to do some of the things we talked about. Um, I think the biggest one, although it doesn't tend to get that much attention, is the chemistry stuff. Because the models we use at the moment, you know, they make all these simplifying assumptions, uh, so they're not directly representing reality. A quantum computer could simulate the chemistry pretty much perfectly. And if you're doing any kind of large-scale industrial process, you know, there will be efficiencies you can gain. You might even find sort of new ways of synthesizing certain chemicals. Uh, And all that is going to be really, really useful.
1: Okay, but the answers will be probabilistic. Tim, are you going to use it?
3: Well, I'm not a programmer, let alone a quantum programmer. I'm merely a humble scribe. But the other day when I was doing the interviews for this piece, I talked to one of IBM's researchers, and he showed me, uh, you know, he gave me a demonstration. He programmed the computer with something called Grover's algorithm that lets you search piles of unsorted data, you know, much faster than any classical machine could. And it was a simple case of him just dragging the symbols onto the bar, pushing the button, and waiting just a fraction of a second for the answers to come back. So it's pretty easy.
1: Sounds great. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, if you have anything to say about this week's show, you can find us on Twitter at EconSciTech and on our Facebook page at The Economist. On last week's show, we discussed the political and scientific repercussions of the Chernobyl disaster. One Twitter user argued, quote, The Soviet Union was already on its deathbed long before Chernobyl. Another Twitter user, Christine Collins, shared a personal connection with Chernobyl. She wrote, So sad. My grandmother lived there before all of this was ever built. I was told of how beautiful it was, now only a nightmare. If you have something to add, please do so. Next, a group of scientists have taken surgery one step closer to the realm of self-driving cars by successfully completing an operation on a pig using an autonomous robot surgeon.
2: From a surgeon's perspective, even though we're all very proud of our craft, skill sets, and, and how we provide care, Wouldn't wouldn't it be nice to have a technology that would enhance my capacity and capability as a surgeon?
1: That was lead author Peter Kim when we had him on the line from his office in Washington. With me to discuss this topic is Ananyo Bhattacharya, our science correspondent, who is working on an article for this week's issue. Ananyo, what have the scientists achieved? What they report is that
2: about 60% of the operation the robot managed to perform completely unaided. And for the remaining 40%, they had to make small adjustments. Although, since they had submitted the paper, they had gone through the operation and the robot had been able to do it pretty much by itself. Now, obviously, there are some caveats. They had to prepare the pig in advance. Obviously, the pig had to be anesthetized. They made an incision to expose its bowel and they prepared the bowel in the way that it would be prepared for a sort of consultant surgeon who is about to get to work on a patient. But those caveats aside, the robot, when they compared it to how human surgeons do, managed to outperform them. In what way was the robot able to outperform the human surgeons? To compare different procedures, uh, in this case it was sewing two bits of small intestine back together after uh, an incision was made. They look at the quality of the stitches, how evenly spaced they are, and they look at how much pressure the bowel can sustain afterwards. So basically, they pump it full of air and they see whether it bursts uh, or at what point there's a leak, uh, if there's a leak. And they found that uh, all of the intestines that had been sewn back together by the robot um, were able to sustain more pressure. They were less leaky.
1: And what sort of technology was necessary to enable... Robot surgery.
2: Yeah, so they started off with a, a standard, fairly a commercially available robot arm, and to that they added a special uh, suturing tool that you can get for the surgical robots that surgeons use now in some hospitals. And added to that, the the key additions were a three-dimensional camera and um, a, a night vision camera.
1: Now, Ananya, one of the most interesting facets of the research is that it didn't rely on artificial intelligence. The way that self-driving cars work is that we've changed the nature of the problem to one that can be addressed through machine learning. But in this instance, they don't use artificial intelligence. So how did they make the robot know what to do?
2: No artificial intelligence was involved in the making of this robot. The robot did not learn, and it wasn't trained in the way that you would expect artificial intelligence to do. So what they did was very kind of painstakingly program a computer to have access to the different surgical knots and ties and stitches, plus a range of other moves. And then the robot was actually able to plan the surgery using the knowledge that it had
1: in its database. We asked Dr. Kim his vision of the future.
2: You know, our vision is if you have a a robotic technology, that robotic technology will contain cumulative knowledge of all the surgeons, not only through generation, but currently so that it's contained within the sort of a cloud space so that when it recommends certain steps, it would is still down the best practice for them.
1: So how feasible is this vision? What
2: Dr. Kim is talking about is really the far future, the idea that one day a robot programmed with the total sum of human surgical knowledge might be able to go away and perform surgery by itself.
1: So I think Dr. Kim's vision is very similar to Kurt Vonnegut's book, Player Piano, in which we instantiate all the knowledge of a manufacturing worker into the machine. But I challenge you, Ananyo, on your idea that this is somehow far off into the future. It seems to me that in this future state, maybe 20 or 30 years, we'll be highly reluctant to have human beings operate on people precisely because it is so messy and will prefer the encoded information of all time that's embodied in the robot. Well, Ken,
2: perhaps I'm more of a pessimist than you, but I look at all of the technologies that scientists are very keen on, like GM, and I look at their public acceptance, and I wonder, in that bright future that you're imagining, will the public trust a robotic surgeon?
1: How about the role of intuition and experience and wisdom and the unexplainable inkling that a doctor may have of what to do at a given time? Will this destroy some of the artifice of the operation?
2: Well, that's fascinating, isn't it, Ken? We we know that an artificial intelligence managed to beat a player at Go recently. So should this become an AI robot at some point in the future, then um, we're, we're going to face that riddle all over again. Can robots have intuition? Well, at the moment, they seem to be
1: doing a pretty good job. Well, they're very good at winning games, and they're not applying themselves to surgery yet. We're still hand-coding the robot in surgery but we'll see where this evolves. So thank you very much, Ananya. Thanks, again. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.
0: The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation...